Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing boss scans. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million hours. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beatty Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. Every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we dive in, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Guys and dolls, I am so glad to be back for another episode of The Debrief, and I'm particularly excited to be joined by one of my guests today. I think she's in the chat. I think I just invited her up to make to be a speaker, but you know, sometimes you got to work out some technical bugs. I'm joined by Allie Dalsimer, who you heard on the episode, is running for Congress in Northern Virginia. I know this the episode elicited a lot of mixed reactions from folks. I know the left is kind of divided on this issue of how much to invest in electoral politics. It was the subject of the first half of today's episode with Ali and both and also Reverend Wendy Hamilton. And I got to say, the comments in the Patreon and online are very mixed. And I'm so glad to have you with us, Ali, to talk directly with the audience about whether they should invest, the extent to which people should invest in to address some of the concerns that have been raised about some of the limits of ele- electoral politics. Welcome, Allie. Hi, how are you? Can you hear me okay? I'm doing very well. Sorry, I had you down, turned down a little bit, but I think this should be better now. Okay. Well, perfect, I'm happy perfect. to be here. Okay, I'm so glad. For those who haven't listened to the episode, I'm going to set it up by playing a brief clip, and then we can talk a little bit about what your reaction was, Allie, to the episode and the reaction to the, uh, the episode. And then I see the queue is already queuing and we'll just start taking questions. Okay, here we go. Nothing changes if you give up. And it's like the example I mentioned early on. It's darkest before the dawn kind of thing. And But, but here's the thing, have, Allie. I, yeah. I, I, I want to help you, but people are going to hear you say they've given up. They haven't given up. They've given up on electoral politics and they feel dismissed. When candidates tell them that if you aren't supporting my candidacy, you are giving up because they're not giving up. They're saying, I see what you're asking me to do. I was on board with that that train. I tried it. And all the people that I got elected failed me. So that's why I spent the first 30 minutes trying to get people to engage in that particular question because folks are not giving up. And I feel like just, you know, just a word of advice. People feel insulted when they're being told just because I'm not going to support an electoral strategy. I'm giving up on broad progress because the people who listen to this show are still very engaged. No, I know that. I I didn't mean to say that. I meant giving up on electoral politics. That's why I mentioned specifically the candidates Mm. because, and, and it's what I said to you before. I think that people are moving more into that activism phase. They're moving more into let's make a protest. Let's do this. And what I say to you is, And I I say it a lot. You can eat more salad with a fork than you can a single chopstick. We need a multi-pronged approach. We really, I'm, I, 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 and maybe I'm naive, but I really believe that we have to make change at the local, 
state, national level. We have to make change in the activism world. We have to make change in the social movement, social justice world. And we have to make change in our electoral system. All right. So, Ali, what you're advocating for is, is a multi-pronged approach. I find it's kind of difficult to argue with that, that, but what do you make of some of the feedback that you've gotten? Well, so some of the feedback has been pretty positive and mm-hmm. uh, encouraging. And, and, you know, as you mentioned, it's been mixed. Other folks don't agree. Um, I can't speak to what other people think or believe in general because their their positions and their opinions are valid regardless of what they are they are what they are and that's valid um i i will say that um it's been a it's been a challenging it's been a challenging couple weeks for Mm. for me as a candidate um because i feel like a lot of people who say they want change um and, and you know, and it's not all about money, right? It's about it's about investing time and energy as well mm-hmm. uh, in campaigns, as well as in the in 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 more social or uh, uh, environmental or political, you know, whatever the movement are that that you want. Um, I will say that uh, we had we had an issue. It's I won't go into all the details, but um, we we had some internal problems from a staffing position and we found ourselves behind on our signatures to get on the the ballot. So we Mm. had this huge push at the end and we had all these people who had said, Hey, you know, I think what you're doing is great. Uh, Yes, we need change. We need someone who is, you know, actually an environmental activist in there. We need someone who has, you know, done climate policy. We want someone who supports Medicare for all. We want someone who supports a living wage. We want someone who supports childcare for working families, you know, all these things that the incumbent doesn't support. And I said, awesome. We have a, we have, we, you know, we have a huge need. We need volunteers to get out and get our signatures. And it it was, you know, we had a small handful of people who, who responded, but it was mostly crickets. And I got to tell you right now, we're at risk of not making the ballot. So we don't make the ballot. There's no change. The incumbent stays. And, and I think that that, that speaks volumes and to all the people who say, you know, well, I appreciate what you're doing, but I want to do my work elsewhere. I say, well, that's great. But, you know, the result is that nothing changes within the system. Yeah, I, I want to get some people in here right away because I, I personally, I will say that even though I completely understand the frustrations of not wanting to say, let's give money, especially people who have little to give, you know, there is this way that, and someone made a comment to this effect in, in Patreon, like, I wonder if some of these up and coming candidates are frustrated with the squad members because of how they've tarnished the brand and the confidence that the left once had that there would be a real different, a real difference could be made by having more progressives in office. I think for many folks, the moment around force the vote and some of the other votes this year that have relied on all of the progressives supporting whatever it is in the house in order for something to happen. And the fact that, you know, they had the same amount of power as mansion and cinema to hold things up and decline to do so makes people really skeptical of what more progressives could do. And that hurts progressives who might be able to act differently and might have the courage to act differently or might have the institutional support to act differently than those who are already in office. I want to get some, some callers in here. Omar, what do you make of that argument? How are you feeling about all of this right now? Well, um, I think that, 
I don't know what exactly the Justice Democrats' um, approach was to holding these candidates uh, accountable was, um, but I'm, yeah, I'm very disillusioned with the way that uh, institutional capture happens with these candidates and the way that they're, the way that they speak to us, um, the representative, the electorate, um, it just seems very patronizing. I think like if we're going to stick with this among other strategies, I think that we should have uh, some way uh, that's more binding, like a contract that's binding with these candidates so that if they fail to meet like a very specific set of uh, policy uh, stances and voting behaviors, and also we need to have access to them. We need to have them uh, go to interviews with, you know, with leftist media and not uh, not squirrel their way, not not um, squirm out of like certain questions and certain issues. Like we need to be very specific about like if you don't engage in these kinds of behaviors regularly and be accessible to us as as an electorate, um, then you promise not to run again. You step down next term. Um, no calling uh, Nancy Pelosi mama bear no like no compromises in certain issues like especially military budget um we need that money for other things other than um going to merchants of death um yeah i don't i don't know if if that's going to be enough yeah i mean so the, so the issue is that AOC, again i don't mean to focus entirely on aoc but aoc did you know, say on camera in a way that is like she can be impeached with. Um, sorry to you know be a lawyer for a second. That she would rather be a one-term congressman than to not vote and act according to her own moral code. You know, she, she we have seen her very publicly wrestle with votes that she's obviously conflicted about. We saw her get dressed down by Nancy Pelosi on the floor of the House. We saw the the kind of ad hoc justifications that were being made online in the back and forth with Justin Jackson around force of vote on, on Twitter. You know, it, it, this has been a revealing moment be, and, and frustrating exactly because AOC is the kind of person who made those representations going into it, who who did really strongly identify as a DSA candidate. And at one point even said, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember at one point even said that, you know, when asked a question about something that she belonged to an organization, meaning the DSA, and that she would have to you know, meet with them and, you know, Congress with them before she was able to weigh in on how she would act in some particular circumstance. And obviously that's just not the case. And so even if someone were to make representations beforehand, I mean, there's no legally binding contract that says you have to behave one way or another down the line. I mean, that's, you know, not how it works. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know why, even, even though we can all say those sorts of things, I wonder what that kind of accountability actually looks like. Allie, what do you make of that? I think that Omar makes a really good point. And I think your point that it's hard to hold folks accountable is also true. In Virginia, we had someone who was running for lieutenant governor in 2021 who signed the Activate Virginia pledge saying that they absolutely would not accept any oil and gas money, that they were going to run a green campaign. And in, you know, the last within the last 10 days or two weeks before the election, 
um, that person buckled and took $10,000 from Dominion Energy, which is the mm. biggest, you know, oil and gas company in Virginia, um, to try and get, you know, whatever last minute money push for advertising, whatever. And um, I, I, I found that appalling. I, I think if you've signed a pledge that you need to stick with it, but, you know, there's no there's no way to hold them accountable, as you pointed out. So I think if we could find a way, I think Omar's point is absolutely we need to make things binding. If you sign a pledge, you need to be binding. Uh, you need to be making sure that you're following up. So when we signed, for example, several of us signed the um the National Green New Deal pledge to actually take substantive action to to enact the Green New Deal if elected, you know, that that is something that is meaningful and important. And I would hope that every single person who signed that would actually follow through. Um, but I'm, I, I, I don't know. There, there needs to be something because we, we yeah. can't keep making all these false promises. I mean, part of well, the issue, too, what it feels like is that people like, again, AOC and these squad members – they don't only have the support of the base of the left right now. I see someone in the comments saying, you know, how does Shama do it? I think because Shama's base of support is so rooted in the people in a, in a pretty progressive part of the country, if she were to renege on her politics, then people would no longer support her. She'd fall out of favor and there would be a replacement for her who would likely not be a right winger. I think what happens with some of these candidates when they get into office is that AOC and the squad members have such a broader base of support now than just the narrow band of leftists. And they frankly can weather the storm of some DSA types being mad at them. Jamal Bowman is not going to live or die on the withdrawn support of DSA in all likelihood. He, it might affect him. I don't know how much door knocking support and all of that he got from them. But, you know, I think that part of the issue is Shama being on a smaller scale and having a, a narrow band of popularity means that she is legitimately beholden to more progressive interests than someone like AOC, who has been made a celebrity to a much broader audience and who was able to draw a huge donation base from an audience that's largely comprised of liberals at this point. But I'm sorry, Omar, I cut you off. What were you going to say? Oh yeah. Um, I think it was Corey Bush who um, I think somebody asked her like, Oh, you're going to vote for a block for a certain issue on as a block for a certain issue. And she said, no, like we vote alone. And I thought that mm -hmm. was really, really revealing. revealing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I was really disheartened by that. Um, I don't know what kinds of conversations they're having, but I think another thing to add to that contract, I mean, I know it's not legally binding, but it, it is to have people be transparent about the process inside. I, I think it, this came up in another show of yours mm -hmm. where somebody said, I, I don't know if it was you, uh, somebody said like, if we come and ask questions of these candidates or of these representatives, like um, we expect them to say like, well, like this person in leadership sat me down and said like, if you don't do this, then you're not gonna get this. Like, I think it was you who said that. Like mm -hmm. we need that kind of transparency from them. Like I'm really sick of just being talked down to, like you can feel it. You can feel that patronizing energy from from these representatives and it, you know it might work with some people but a lot of us just can see right through it and it's very infuriating 
Yeah, well, I want to take this pause just to introduce uh, Reverend Wendy Hamilton is also in the room. I feel very um, grateful to have both guests from the podcast in the uh, call-in room tonight. Welcome, Reverend. Uh, You're going to have to unmute yourself using the little microphone button in the bottom right of the screen to talk. Thank you. You know you had to, like, spell it out for me like a child, right? <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> it's tricky. It's not user-friendly. It's fine. We're all, we're all getting through it. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here to speak with you. I appreciate the invitation and am enjoying the conversation. So thank you so much. Of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. I'm hearing a little bit of an echo of myself. I'm not sure if maybe if you turn my volume down, I don't know if you have me on speaker. I might have you on twice. Hold on one second. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go back on mute and make sure that I don't have you on twice. Okay. All right. Uh, In the meantime, Omer, thank you for your comments. I'm going to move on to Allie. Allie, what's on your mind? Uh, With respect to the voting is a block or singly. I remember that comment from Corey Bush. I, I, I had the same sort of sentiment. Um, I will tell you what's on my mind right now, though, is just the sense that um, I really feel like there is a lot of legitimate feeling for being unhappy with how the squad has performed. I feel like there's a certain amount of leeway, perhaps, that we needed to give them early on. Uh, especially when members were very new. Mm. And I think that looking at performance as they have become um, more experienced and, and following those trends has been important. And, you know, when you talk about they have as much power as mansion or cinema, I'm not, not really sure that that's fair because there seems to be these alliances and allegiances and especially with someone like uh well actually either one of them they have so much big corporate backing uh and so much institutional power and i feel like that when when someone like cory bush or or even aoc was was new that maybe they didn't have that but i feel like they're growing into that and and i would like to see them step forward and really take more of that and try to be less influenced by the gamesmanship. And I feel like someone like Cori Bush isn't. I feel like she's someone who just stands up and tries to do what's right. Um, and I'm not sure that's as true for, uh, I, I think that it's, it's true. It's, it's, it happens at varying degrees for members of the squad uh, and other associated mm. people, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I do think that when when I am talking about her having as much power or the the voting block of progressives in the House having as much power as Manchin and Cinema, what I mean is that they have as much power to obstruct legislation as Manchin and Cinema. Bernie has as much power as Manchin or Cinema to obstruct legislation in the same way because of the, having a 50-50 Senate. So I think what you're pointing to is that the consequences might be bigger for the squad members. But that's why we're getting back to this point that they all initially made, or at least AOC most notably initially made, that she was willing to weather those consequences, that she wasn't here to be a career politician, that she wasn't here to maintain a six-figure salary and, and be on the Hill, that she would rather come and go in a blaze of glory if it meant drawing mm-hmm. attention to the progressive issue. Now, there are people 
who argue that it's better for her and the others to stay in Congress and to save up their quote unquote political capital. That was the rationale that was given around the force of vote issue, right? That they were going to save their political capital for something down the line, which I think some people were sympathetic to, especially back in January when it was beginning of Biden's term. And we really didn't know if if she was being truthful about having an ace up her sleeve, a bigger get that would somehow be thwarted by not voting for Nancy Pelosi to be speaker of the house. But a year plus later, I think the skepticism is more warranted. I mean, what what do you make of that, Allie? I think that they were manipulated by very savvy politicians like Pelosi and others who've been doing this for freaking decades and who convinced them that they needed to toe the line so that they could have some sort of future whatever. And I think that they were lied to. That's my impression. I could be well, wrong. Winnie the Pooh, Allie. Sorry, we have two alleys. We have guest alley and we have caller alley. Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh alley. I mean, is that kind of that that kind of rationale? The idea that they were hoodwinked. I mean, like even if they were hoodwinked, is that satisfactory to you? I mean, I guess the question is, um, you know, candidate alley. Do you? How does one prevent themselves from being similarly hoodwinked? If these women, if these people who I think are very astute, very intelligent you know, relatively savvy, managed to pull all kinds of wins out of their tuchuses in the course, you know, of, of even getting to Congress. Now, all of a sudden, how, how much are we supposed to just give them a pass for not having figured it out? And how much should we invest in future candidates if people are so easily manipulated? I think they've had their pass and I think it's time for them to stand up. And I think some of them are. And I think that uh, your point that they need to stand together and stand up for what's right in in a in a manner similar to what you know Mansion or Cinema or others have been doing, I, I think is absolutely what needs to happen. Because you're right. I mean, we all wanted to be a little flexible when Biden first came in, see which way the wind blows, see what happened. Uh, I think we've all seen what's happened, and we've you know we've we've seen that we've seen that things are not working the way they need to be, you know. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, Allie. I want um, you to get in here for a second, Reverend. I'm going to bring up Eric because I know Eric Gray, my cousin Eric, is going to have some thoughts and feelings that I'd like both of you candidates to respond to. Eric, what do you make up all of this? Um, we're still talking about electoralism. <laughs> um, I knew you weren't going to like that, Eric. Yeah, because we're, cause we're seeing labor victories without electoralism. Uh-huh. So at this point, you can't blame people for not Wanted to even mess with this? You saw you saw the live the the replay comments for the premiere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they're not people are not falling for this for this shit again. Like this justice democrat experiment again. People are not falling for this no more. I mean, and, but some people are. I mean, so so I did see so, some well, comments those, and the people are, those people aren't paying attention. Well, some of them look. I think that people who are patrons on the on the show are paying the five dollars a month and are writing in these comments. Look, I, you're right. There are a lot of people here. Chet's mom saying we don't have fucking seven years, let alone let alone a slow chipping of seventy years. Like there are definitely people like that, but there are also people who say, "I'm sorry, I'm looking for one of these comments." Um, that like that they've been made a believer out of that they they hear what these candidates are saying about how much of a struggle it is. They think there's value of having an inside outside game. They hear perhaps Allie talking about how difficult it was for her to get um, signatures 
and they think, well, obviously I want, I, I maybe I've taken for granted that there should be some progressives inside when we mobilize enough to get an inside outside strategy to actually work. And it's good to have some people there as a kind of stopgap measure, or at least to use the platform of the position. I mean, how do you feel, Eric, when you hear Ali say something like she's struggling to get enough signatures to get on the ballot? I mean, I'm not surprised by that. I'm, I'm Why? just saying Same I'm not, well, well, it's just you got to see where people are at. I mean, what people see that they keep electing all these people and then nothing changes materially. So well, here's a comment point, from people, so pe- mm-hmm. people are just going to stop giving a damn. So Here, here's a comment from Sean Duval who says, "I will still donate to progressive candidates which are on Democratic tickets. They are not on any other ticket except independent tickets. I have witnessed the change." The last five years, for God's sake, 2020 was a terrible year for our democracy. We almost lost to January 6, 2021. I want to see women and other representatives that reflect the demographics of America. What I don't want to see is Marsha Blackburns, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ron DeSantis, Rick Scotts, and the rest of those fraudsters representing the American public. So all caps, get over yourselves and participate. It's your time, people. I'm 56 this summer. I do it for my kids and their kids. I see no future with the Republican Party. I never did. Just the same old crap. When another viable third party campaigns i'll vote for that party again if that party aligns with my interests so tired of the complacency it's becoming your world i'm generation x here for the change then passing the torch along um what the fuck was that um <laughs> eric like, like eric. No, no 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 i am gonna say that i'm gonna say okay what the fuck was that okay so does this person think going with the democratic party is better somehow like you see, Joe Biden's even worse than Trump. Well, Reverend it's to the Bundy, point where you... people, it's to the point where people are missing Trump. What what do you what do you say to that, Reverend? When he, I mean, do you understand where people where, where this frustration is is coming from? And I... and do you, do you hear Eric when he says that perhaps there would be better odds, like it's the candidate would be better off in terms of fundraising and and grassroots volunteer support and all of that if they did take this more adversarial approach. I hear, I hear and respect everybody's, you know, feelings because everybody's coming from a, a very personal place on this. I think mm. what really is, is running through my mind and heart, if you will, as I mm-hmm. listen to this conversation, is it also comes down to, and I, let me speak for myself. If I put myself out here and say, this is what, what I am, this is who I am, this is what I stand for, this is what I'm going to not stand for. And then I go and compromise on that. How am I sleeping at night? You understand what I'm saying? And, mm-hmm. and I took that into consideration for myself before I even began this journey to Congress. Like I, I like to consider myself a woman of integrity, right? A person of integrity. And I would not want to subject myself to something that would cause me to compromise on that. But Reverend, do you think that AOC and all of them don't see themselves as women of integrity or aren't women of integrity? I I can't speak for them. That's why I'm locating it with me. I'm just suggesting, however, that Mm -hmm. me as a, you know, as a woman of integrity, for me, it would be very difficult for me to go and do almost the opposite of what I'm promising to do without expecting, as some of you all said, blowback or consequences from other people. But but for myself as well, you understand what I'm saying? So I don't I don't know that 
I could go up to Congress and completely go back on, you know, what it is that I said I believe in, what it said, what it is that I said that I stood for without it causing some internal um, conflict within me. So I, I don't know what process, what thinking process that AOC and the squad knows might have gone through to arrive at the decisions that they've made, but it, it, it makes me wonder how that went for them. If they but, 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 that. but that's the thing. The, the, the answer is either that AOC and them don't have integrity, right? There's only two options, that AOC and them don't have integrity, or they do have integrity, but what they're up against is so overwhelming that nobody, regardless of how well-meaning they are, no matter how much good faith they act with, can withstand the overwhelming force of the Democratic Party. And I think belief That's in the gross. latter, That's belief, yeah, belief in the latter is why so many people who've responded to this podcast have said, I, I, I love the idea of being able to do an inside-outside game, but what the past three years or four years have demonstrated is that there is no working within the Democratic Party. The second you are elected and within the Democratic mechanism and responsive to it means that you are no good to the interests of the left whatsoever. Right. And I, I understand that. And I, and I agree with that. And I've told you even in private conversation that I'm simply running on the Democratic ticket because we have closed primaries in D.C. Mm-hmm. If I had the opportunity to run as a third party, I absolutely would, because I don't think that um, either party is servicing the fullness of who we are as human beings. And, you know, let alone those, you know, our interests that we have in seeing improvements in mm-hmm. our country. So I don't, I don't think that the current state is meeting our needs and that's why we find ourselves in these predicaments right so until that viable third party or more options come along i i would like to believe that folks are trying to do their best to navigate through what we have what we're being presented with and that may not be good enough for some and i get that but what i'm saying is if it's good enough for the person that's doing it then i'm wondering if that person is the, the right person to be in that space. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, Eric, what do you say to that? What, what do you say to Reverend Wendy saying that she would be on a third party ticket? Like many of you, I don't know if it's you specifically, Eric, but many of you have said, well, if they were running on a third party ticket, mm-hmm. that would be different. Reverend Wendy is saying yeah. she doesn't have that option, but would, does that make any difference to you? I, speaking as someone from a closed primary state, I'm obviously down here in fun Florida. Um, God bless. Yeah. Sorry for you. God bless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I teach, and I teach here, so it's even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I still, I still can't go along with that. Mm. Why not? Because, because you see, because let me let me explain. So, I see how trash the Florida Democratic Party is. Mm-hmm. Like these motherfuckers are trash, and like capital trash, all caps trash, and just just like what's gonna happen with this congressional cycle, Byron Dallas is probably gonna win his seat again in my district, mm. just because of how terrible Joe Biden is. You know they're gonna all do this same shit. Tag Biden right with every other Democratic candidate. They're gonna do the same shit. So, and that's part of the reason. That's a huge part of the reason, really. Why a lot of people just like, bro, stop being associated with this party. Like, that's why a lot of people feel that way, including myself. 
He's going to get tagged with Pelosi and and Biden and all these grotesque figures. And, and besides, it's it's just as long as we keep playing this red blue game, it's it's there's no real way out. Like, um, we have real climate issues. We have real climate danger. This green new deal from the, on the Democratic side has just. They just took the they just took the Green Party Green New Deal and pissed on it. And that's basically what it is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we don't got time for this shit. So well, Ali, I want to give you a chance. Sorry, go ahead, Eric. No, no, it's just that we don't we don't have time for this bullshit. Like it's either it's either the people got to get up and it's like I have plenty of other people been writing this and it's true. We got to get up and do this shit ourselves. And mm-hmm. whether it's educating other people, act act being active and doing mutually all ty- all types of stuff because clearly the system is not responding no matter what we do it's the system so, i definitely want to just say chime in on that it's mm-hmm. the system big time go ahead i wanted to give ali a chance to respond to that because i know that she has an environmental background you know mm-hmm. given the exigency of that particular crisis and the lack of movement from the democratic party and biden um you know there, you know, there's an argument that environmentalists, more than others, should potentially have more skepticism of the future of electoralism. I want to thank you also before I let Allie respond, Eric, and I'm going to pull uh, Bide. You're going to be up next, but go ahead, Allie. Um, yeah, thanks. So first, I, I just want to say, cousin Eric is spot on on so many levels. Um, you know, this this process that I've gone through recently. The, the Democratic Party has been, I'll just put it out there, has been horrible to me. Uh, in mm. Virginia, the, the Democratic Party is supposed to support all candidates equally. I will tell you that with one exception, I had zero people helping me in any way, shape or form to the point where they wouldn't even send out an email that I drafted. So um, it mm. was, it's, it's been a nightmare and I hate the two party system. I think corporate Dems and corporate Republicans have so much more in common than the rest of us working class people and people who care about society, the environment, our planet, the people who live here. Um, and if I could, uh, if, if I could abolish the system, I would in Virginia, you know, we're a D plus 32, meaning like 75, 80% you know, in my district, in, in this particular district are Democrats. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're kind of stuck with it, but I'd like to blow the whole system up because it sucks and uh, it doesn't work. And even groups that say they support grassroots candidates, women, progressive candidates, they don't. They they support the incumbent, um, regardless of who that incumbent is. And um, so, but then, Ali, the, the argument is, and, and again, I'm, I'm not making this argument. I just, I'm just trying to make sure everyone's talking about the same thing. The argument is that even by running as a Democrat, you're validating a system that, from our perspective as progressives, is so obviously inequitable. But our continued participation in it makes it seem like it's fair, the same way that Barack Obama being president makes a lot of people want to argue that racism is dead and all this kind of thing. You know what I mean? I mean, does that give you any concern? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I have evolved significantly in my position. Um, I I just even these last few weeks have just been so overwhelmingly. Um, there's just been so much hostility towards me because I'm not towing the line because I'm I'm calling the incumbent to DAS, that kind of thing. 
Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm seriously considering, you know, what I need to do going forward, right? Like, how do I need to approach this? And I first obviously have to wait and see what's going on, you know, with this cycle. Um, I can't make any decisions yet. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I definitely understand the frustrations. Um, I think that one of the things the squad could absolutely do is actually put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and um, at least get campaign finance reform issues passed, right? That's something everybody runs on and no one does a thing about when they get there. So I think that would be, uh, I think that would be good. In terms of some of the climate danger and environmental issues, um, I, I, it boggles the mind. It boggles the mind that people are not addressing this climate crisis in a much more immediate and real way. I don't think people get it that, you know, we, and I don't know if I said this on, 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 on the interview or not now, but, um, you know, we, we've missed the opportunity to reverse climate impacts. We, we can no longer reverse climate impacts. All we can do is try to mitigate and minimize um, by taking action now. And we're not doing it. We're still not doing it. And we're toying around with, oh, we're going to make an electric bus. That's, that's great. That's really great. But that's, you know, that's like turning off the lights in your home when the entire city of Dallas is lit up during, you know, an ice storm, right? So, um, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. You know, all I know is that everybody needs to be doing their part because collectively we can make a difference and everybody needs to, you know, if they care, everybody needs to do something and what they choose to do, I think depends on um, where their passions lie, where their experience lie, you know, and, and, and how they feel they can make the best difference. Well, I want to get Biden here because I know, I believe he's a little bit more sympathetic to electoralism than some of the people in the chat. So, Biden, what did you make of this episode and what the candidates are saying tonight? Yeah, a, a little bit more. Uh, emphasis on the little bit. Um, okay. Okay, Biden. I see I, that. You know, we're, getting, not, we're not getting corporate law by tonight. We're getting revolutionary by tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, well, look, I'll, generally, I do think the electoralism, the reason why it's important is... Uh, at least to some extent, it's how people are taught to, uh, or regular people, it's one of the few opportunities they have to directly give their input on something, um, to directly have a, not necessarily a voice, but to indicate where they stand on certain issues. I think if you use it as a, uh, I, I think you should run more third party candidates and more people who are actually running policies that are popular with people, um, in order to actually elevate those ideas and to, uh, if nothing else, elevate the political conversations around them. I think Bernie is a, you know, obviously Rand is a Democrat, but uh, the reason why so many people are running directly off of so many policies that he popularized is because of electoralism. It's like the one time where there's cameras, there's like, you know, you have a uh, sort of a, a sounding board uh, for your ideas. But that being said, you know, the Democratic Party is not your friend. Um, they haven't been for a very, very long time. N neither is the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party is not your friend. And I think there's a real risk uh, of running candidates on a Democratic Party ticket. Uh, by doing that, you lend credibility to a progressive wing of the Democratic Party that just doesn't exist. Uh, a lot of the times what you see happen is you see these you know, Democrats start uh, 
shifting their positions uh, left or their rhetoric more left, but then they do the same shit, you know, same shit, different toilet. Um, and it's uh, by also running on that ticket, you do give some credibility to the idea that the Democratic Party is still the home of progressives. And it's just not. And it hasn't been for a long time. Um, yeah, I want to hear what, what Ali and the Reverend say to that. I, I'm doing, I'm, I'm co-hosting um, The Hill again tomorrow, and I'm working on a radar about how progressives always get blamed about, you know, for everything. And there is, uh, you know, as I'm hearing you talk about it, I'm thinking of how, you know, they wouldn't be able to do that. All these people wouldn't be able to cosplay as progressives. You know, the idea that progressives get blamed for something we did, like, be radical in an area that maybe isn't ready for us is one thing. The idea that like Elizabeth Warren makes a mistake or loses has poll low poll numbers and progressives get blamed for it is insane. Pelosi here's from an article, recent article, Pelosi privately blames progressives for nearly costing Democrats the house and said AOC and Jaya Paul were fighting to be quote queen B of the left quote in a few strictly confidential conversations, she pointed a finger leftward. Pelosi told one senior lawmaker that Democrats had alienated Asian and Hispanic immigrants with loose talk of socialism. In some of the same communities, the Italian Catholic speaker said, Democrats had not been careful enough about the way they spoke about abortion among new Americans who were devout people of faith. You know, it's a midterm season, so the left punching begins. You know, this is part and parcel of the is allowing folks to represent themselves as progressives when there is no real progressive movement holding us back. I just spent some time with a family, you know, some, some family who are more conservative and not conservative, more moderate, more centrist. And it becomes this conversation about always distinguishing what is a real progressive from a fake progressive. And most people are really incredulous and kind of, you know, just fully not aware that what we think is progressives revile people like, I'm sorry, reviles perhaps a strong word, but are highly skeptical of people like Elizabeth Warren much less people like Pete Buttigieg or, you know, a Cory Booker. What, what, do you, what do you guys make of that? So I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit. I mean, I think that's what Andrew Yang is trying to do with his forward party, right? He's trying to get, get away and not be left or right, but be forward, right? That's, that's, that's his attempt to do that. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I like it or don't like it. There are things I like about it, things I don't, but, um, you know, I think the concept of trying to create something that's not just independent, but something that's more forward thinking and getting away. So here's the problem that I have faced. The word progressive has become somehow negative. Progress has somehow become associated with this really negative thing. And like you said, people reviling the, the progressives or whatever. So um, I, uh, sorry, I, I believe I know why that is or one of the reasons, too, is because of that Democratic Party branding. Right, um, I agree. So I running on that ticket gives you all of the negatives to it, too, mm -hmm. while allowing the Democrats to punch you left. Um, yep. Or and, uh, Meanwhile, you take on the ineptitude of the party, you take on their uh, corporatism and their sort of um, like wolf in sheep's clothingness that a lot of Democrats have uh, reputations for being now. Uh, people see you as fake, people see you as the unauthentic, they don't trust you. They come in with their own biases from before. Um, and uh, you're also taking on the history of, uh, you know, especially the recent history of a Democratic Party that has been, uh, a, a, with the exception of Bernie, who is, you know, technically an independent, um, has been so uh, basically failed in every way towards working people and, and people who have historically relied on them.
but sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I think you're, I think you're spot on. I think you're exactly spot on. I think that, you know, a lot of us, myself included, run as Democrats because we're, this district is so heavily de Democratic. Independents never get more than two or three percent of the vote. Um, but you're right. I mean, not only do we validate the system, as you said, Brianna, but, you know, we also take on all that negative baggage and become the, the, the punching the punching blocks for for folks who are, you know, call themselves progressives, but don't support so many of the things that that people really need and want. So, um, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And can I say something um, just along the lines of the forward party? You know, full disclosure, I have been endorsed by the forward party as a, a former staffer or, and personal friend of Andrew Yang's. And I know that people have strong feelings about Andrew one way or the other. I just want to, you know, put that out there because what Andrew is trying to do is something that's opposite of the duopoly. That's, that's was his whole premise is that, you know, he sees that the two party system is not working. It's a complete failure. And he really wants candidates to be able to run on policy and on their ideas and give people the opportunity to select the candidate that is, you know, best represents their interests, best represents the policies that they stand for. And it's that principle that drew me to him. You know, I don't agree with everything Andrew says, and sometimes he puts his foot way, way in his mouth and all that, but who doesn't? You know, we're, we're, you know, we're all human. But the spirit of what he is trying to do is what drew me to his presidential campaign in the first place. This notion somehow that don't put me in a box, don't paint me in a corner, don't because I identify one way or the other think that that's, that's the fullness of who I am and that's the only way that I can be expected to respond is based on that R or that D after my name. Let's take those out of the way, put whatever on there, but make the focus be about what I stand for, my policies, and if they resonate with you, and if those policies are going to bring tangible solutions to people, not just rhetoric, not just flowery promises that are made um, that you have every intention on going back on because they're just, you know, words and they have no conviction um, attached to them, but rather just let them run on what they say they stand for and what they're going to do, and then see if they do it and if they do not then you know find yourself uh, an opportunity to hold them accountable hopefully like i said early on they're holding themselves accountable but for me i would just like to be judged on on what i say i'm going to do and the results that i produce um in response to what i said i'm going to do not going well, in well, with a preconceived set of, of expectations from other people but let's let's talk about that for a second Winnie, because i you know, I, I got asked today, you know, I was I was chatting with someone about electoralism and they were like, okay, like I get your frustration with it, but what do you hope to accomplish by divesting from it? Like, mm -hmm. okay, no one votes for Democrats anymore, then what happens? And then we kind of had a conversation about accelerationism and, you know, what are, may or may not happen and the risks that doing that, taking that approach take and how bad is it going to get before it gets better, if it ever gets better and all of that. But right. here's a different, somewhat different question. And people in, in, in districts where... The option is really that is whether it's a primary, right? Is the leftist candidate going to win or is the centrist Democrat going to win? I think the real question should be, what is the left candidate going to be, be able to accomplish or facilitate that the centrist candidate wouldn't do also if the progressive stuff is never even brought to a vote? 
Like, okay, I mean, this is part of their frustration. People feel like left candidates are running on Medicare for all, a Green New Deal and all this stuff because they know full well it's never going to happen. We're never going to have a vote on it. No one's ever going to force a vote on it. We can do these little Medicare for all panels and people can fund. Ra- I mean, obviously, I'm not saying this about you. I think everyone in the oh, chat yeah. believes you guys are operating in good faith. Sure. But when we've seen it before and when we see, you know, this Medicare for all hearing happening, oh, wow, magically in an election year when no one gave a shit during the whole pandemic, when we see, you know, Biden's tweeting healthcare is a human right, L-O-L, you know what I mean? During an election right. year, that it starts to feel like a marketing exercise as opposed to, you know, we have to get elect- progressives elected because there's going to be a tangible difference between what they can accomplish in office versus the next Abigail Spamberger. I mean, what do you say to that? I say all of those feelings, they're valid, but, but I also feel like you can't, we can't predict, unfortunately, how things, you know, outcomes. So we have to, and I'm not trying to diminish anything, but when I say manage my manage our expectations, I, I'm suggesting that we have to put ourselves, gosh, in the shoes of of the folks that we're talking about. You know, what would we find ourselves doing in those situations, and how can we? What would we do differently? And if we can come to a conclusion of what we would could do differently. When can I start that? Do I have to be in office to start that? Do I have to be, you know, is there something that I can be doing right now that would be like what I would be doing if I were in the position of that person? Does that make sense? Because the only way- Yes, but that that is the question. That is the question I think people want answered. You know, is there a specific legislation, that you, piece of legislation or something that you saw happen in the course of the last year or two where you said, oh gosh, if it had been me and not, um, I'm sorry, home slice. Who's, uh, I'm sorry, your, your LC? opponent, Wendy. Oh. Uh, no, oh, what's her face? Norton. Sorry. Eleanor Holmes Norton. Sorry. <laughs> if it, if it had sorry, been you, was... I mean, it's a non-voting district. I mean, I know it's, it's not exactly analogous because DC, but well, Allie, you know, if it had been, um, not, uh, Crowley, Connolly, Connolly, right. you know, and it had been you, you know, are there, is it like, oh, I would have voted differently on that or that would have made it different. Yes. I mean, are there yes. examples like that you can point to? Sure. I mean, you know, he's on record when you talk about Medicare for all, he's on record as saying he'll never support that. But in terms of things that were voted on, he, you know, he did not vote for um, paid ma- family medical leave for uh, non-federal workers. Um, he did not support universal pre-K until it was part of the Build Back Better. And I think he only supported it then because he knew it was never going to pass. Um, you know, I think there are a number of votes where he, he and I would have voted very differently. Um, so Biden, what do you say to that? Does that, is that persuasive to you that like, let's say there were more allies in Congress that the next time one of those policies came down the pike, that it might actually have a chance of passing. Well, I, I think there's, there's maybe some like, hope for that. Uh, I don't know if that's borne itself out a lot. Uh, and I think that takes us back to the corrupting influence of the system when people get in to Congress. Yep. I think something that you would have to do in that situation, actually, it's funny, since um, the last time I called in and uh, was obsessed with the word organize, which I've now replaced with synergize. 
<laughs> uh, thank you, whoever <laughs> suggested that different word. I'm actually, I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm working with a friend now uh, just on some proposed legislation. We don't know if it's, I mean, I highly doubt it ever be able to be passed in Congress, but the, the idea of it is to basically expand on like the stock trading ban and to say, okay, well, people who are elected into office can only uh, increase their net worth or their net uh, wealth by, uh, you know, X percentage of their already existing net w uh, worth. Uh, and anything above that will be 100% taxable. Something along the lines that uh, stops or deters people from running for Congress who would otherwise use the office for, or who would otherwise be more prone to be corrupt in the first place. Uh, people who, you know, want to get in for the, uh, the access it gives them and their ability to get different deals from that access. Um, and, you know, the, the legislation would apply for people who, like households and then people uh, for, uh, we're still trying to work out the details of how long it applies after they're out of office. So you don't have the, you know, the Barack Obama coming out of office and then uh, signing a $100 million or whatever deal with Netflix, which is, you know, clearly not because he's a great director. Um, but I, I do think you, you have to you have to attack the input, um, the, the the sort of system as it's currently set up and, and exists because I do think some of that corrupting influence uh, sort of takes away from well if we just elect the right people because we it's it's I mean you gave the Nancy Pelosi example in the beginning right like it's mm -hmm. the right people uh, we'll see what happens with AOC we'll see where she goes but like I really wanted her to go in there and fuck shit up I wanted her to go in there and just mm -hmm. like to 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 cause a ruckus you need more people Brianna. in there who are causing a ruckus and and causing a ruckus mm -hmm. for people because if people at least see that you are you are not bowing down you are fighting for them you are you are really not abandoning them then they won't abandon politics they won't abandon electoralism um because even it i don't even think it's so much about them getting the things passed right now like it's about them not being unrelenting and uncooperative with everything else that the establishment would want to do. Yeah, and you so see that on the right. You know, Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene, a lot of the talk around force about, sorry, not sorry for continuing to talk about it, was that, oh, they'll lose their committee appointments. And not only did they get only the same appointments that they had the year before with um, our uh, Katie Porter getting less than she had gotten before, but... Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was like, I don't give a F if they strip me of my committee appointments. I'm going to bring a gun up into Congress. There's no real consequences for her because the, the Republicans have no power anyway. The same way that progressives you know, substantially, sub substantially don't have the power to do much except for you know block and abstract, which is meaningful. And when Republicans come into power next time along, she's going to have no no trouble fundraising, and she's a hero and a darling of the base. And all the Republicans that find her to be distasteful are still going to line up and vote for her because ultimately they care about the Supreme Court and all the things and all the justifications that are used for why everybody in each on each side of the aisle sign up and vote blue no matter who or red no matter who. It, but she she made a name for herself, and it is very frustrating to see a total, you know, empty skull like Marjorie Ta Taylor Greene use understand that strategic point and all of our wonderful leftists fail to recognize the value of being seen as a fighter. Brianna, let me say something real quick to just go sure. back. The, I, I hear what you're saying on that, but you talked about my candidate, uh, my c opponent, I'm sorry, that uh, I'm running against Eleanor Holmes Norton here in 
D.C. And while we don't mm-hmm. have a vote in Congress, you know, because we're working and fighting towards statehood, which is something I will continue to do, she hasn't necessarily presented herself as a a paragon of progressivism either. You know, she's kind of like what Biden was describing, you know, someone who's kind of gotten in there and gotten comfortable with the power, Mm -hmm. you know, that that she does have, you know, because even though we can't vote in that role, I could use my voice. So there haven't been any particular issues where she has, um, you know, voted or not voted, but she hasn't used her voice, which, you know, she can do. You know, she hasn't crafted any legislation, which she can do, that would, you know, suggest that had she had a vote, this is what she would have been fighting for. And that's what I'm running to say is this is what I stand on. This is what I will do and how I will do it differently. And this is how you will you know, know that I am endeavoring to be that person of integrity, because these are the kinds of things I'm going to make my voice and the voice of D.C., um, you know, very present on in Congress so that people understand that that's why I'm there. I'm not there to make friends. I'm not there to make deals. I don't take, you know, corporate PAC money. She's the, uh, you know, she's the chair of the a subcommittee on transportation and oversight. And she, you know, she is replete with donations from FedEx and UPS and nobody calls her out on those things because all she's chosen to work on is statehood. And she's kind of hidden behind that, in my opinion. Um, and, and kind of, you know, built up her portfolio um, on the back of statehood. But that being said, I've been contrasting myself to show that, no, I, I'm not going to be that. I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to do whatever I can within my power until I get a vote to make sure that I am influencing the vote or creating legislation that I, you know, that is going to be progressive, that is going to make a difference and is going to be what I said. And if I don't do it, I want you to hold me accountable. What I'm also not going to do is get up there and get comfortable and not show my face back in the district or not show my face, you know, with the groups that sent me that help support me and get me there so that nobody can call me out on what I'm doing or not doing. She doesn't come out at all. You know, you don't get the, the chance to say to her, why aren't you arguing for this? Why aren't you fighting for this? Because she got over there. She got comfortable. She doesn't come out. I mean, she's, you know, advanced in age now. So that's that's part of the reason she doesn't. But that's not that's not how I'm going to be. And that's how I've been running. I'm letting them know you're going to see what you see right now as a candidate. You will see as a representative. If if I'm not doing what I said I was going to go up there to do, then you need to vote me out or you need to do whatever. But I'm going to, you know, make every effort and intention to do that. But if I don't, I need I need to be prepared for those consequences. Biden, I want to give you just 30 minutes to respond, 30 seconds rather to respond. And then I'm going to take some more callers because I can't go that late tonight because I got the hill in the morning. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think other people here can kind of understand the response and you kind of get it too. I don't, I don't think a lot of that sort of really addresses the actual uh, underlying issue too, right? I, mm-hmm. I think one of the problems, well, just generally speaking, I think one of the problems with electoralism is we put too much into the candidate and then the candidate, I don't think very many candidates go in there with a lack of like a, uh, you know, a lot of them do go in with a lack of personal integrity, but I don't, I think there are a lot of people who truly believe in themselves and then they get there. Um, If we're, if we're not changing what happens once they get there, if we're not somehow creating more filtering processes, if we're not somehow, uh, destroying that 
system and its corrupting influences uh, and replacing it with something else, then we're going to keep running into the same problems. And I, I hope I don't sound like ungracious towards your guests for coming. I, I, it takes a lot to run. I know it takes a lot to get out there in front of people you don't know and to have them all criticizing you. And especially with as, uh, mm-hmm. as you know, nice as the left can be, as, as we are. We're, we're, <laughs> you, know. Um, you know, it's a lot. But I do think that we have to start, we really do have to start thinking of these problems more systemically because we keep running into the same issue over and over and over again. And we're going to have, you know, disagreements and everything along the way, but... Um, I don't think personal integrity can, uh, you know, maybe it can beat a system. I don't think it's going to. Um, so that's, that's really Thanks, by it. I really appreciate all your commentary. I want Allie to weigh in. I see you're speaking, but I'm going to bring Hank up uh, next in the queue. Go ahead, Allie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm 100% with Biden on this. And, and, you know, cousin Eric said something similar a little bit ago. And the reality is, that the there are systemic issues and we really do need to figure out how to work through this and i i i feel like if there was a way we could magically get 60 you know there's at least 60 progressives running for congress right now if we can magically elect them all that would be great and we might be able to make you know some some substantive changes voting as a block um, you know, demanding certain bills get introduced and then having, you know, the numbers to push them through. The reality is that's not going to happen because as we've seen in multiple races, you know, we saw it most, uh, you know, um, what do you call it? In, in, in recently lights. Mm. No, not recently. Just, just a really big example of it was most pointedly Chantel Brown, Nina Turner race, right? Like that was just yeah. horrible what happened there. And, but that's what happens, right? The corporate money comes in and smashes an awesome candidate. And, um, you know, and we, and we see that all levels. So the, 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 the thought that we could actually get 50 or 60 genuinely, you know, progressive candidates in office to make a difference is it's not, it's not going to happen. Right. So we're, we're tinkering at the edges. So, you know, the, the, what do we do? I don't know. I don't have the answer. I think we need to find the answer. Um, working within the system is one answer. Working outside of the system is another answer. I still believe we need a multi-pronged approach. I think we have to work at all levels and chip away at it because if we attack something from all angles, then maybe we can finally make a difference and make a dent. Um, and that's that's the only thing that I can think of. But, um, you know, the, the points being made are, are completely valid. I, I appreciate that, Allie. Hank, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hey there, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Awesome, yeah, well, I don't know. I hear that argument about, you know, we have 16 progressives or whatever up for election, and if we could just elect them all, then, you know, maybe we would get some change. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, and I've spent my entire life under the governance of, you know, Democrats at the state level and even you know, quote, progressives at the city level. And it just seems like it doesn't matter how many progressives or how many Democrats there are in power, that once they get that power, you know, they're going to find a way to do what 
you know, the powerful want them to do and not what we want them to do. And yeah. I, I just, <clears throat> I have trouble with that. Did anybody watch, um, you know, the Frank Underwood, what's it called? House of Cards. Yes. Yeah. I'm thinking about how, I mean, I know it's TV, cut me some slack, but the, the way that there would be these huge swings in vote tallies and the very open currying of favor and glad handing tit for tat and I'll scratch your back and you'll scratch mine. And how often the characters in that show, whether it was Frank or Claire, were able to pull out a legislative victory with all the behind the scenes machinations and how it often came down to just two or three, but they had what it took to get what needed to get done. I, I don't mean to say that life is television, but you look at Obama having a supermajority, look at what's ha- what happened around the very small ask of simply not making Nancy Pelosi speaker of the house without getting something in return. And it is very difficult not to believe that somebody is going to be the weak link, no matter how many people get in there because maybe it only takes you getting rid of Joe Lieberman. Maybe it takes you influencing two out of six squad members to not have a force of vote moment or to get the iron dome funding or whatever it is, the one six police funding. They're, they're all doing their rotating sellout routine (laughs) as Mm -hmm. at the same time that corporate Dems are doing the rotating villain routine. And as long as you believe in that, as long as you subscribe to the rotating villain narrative, it, it doesn't actually make sense to invest because even if you two maintain and have integrity, somebody in the group is going to be the weak link. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I do. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Hank. Uh, let's hear from Clifford. Hi. Thanks. Hey, for, Clifford. Thanks for having me on. Of um, course. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm just calling in because of um, I, I just like to advance once again. Um, uh, Extinction Rebellion's doing mm-hmm. a lot of stuff right now, um, so April's kind of like an action month. So maybe it would be, uh, and they've been planning this for several months since 2021. So um, maybe this would be if you're ever considering maybe having on one of their spokespeople. Um, this might be a good month to do that. Um, just my two cents. Um, but I, oh, but sure, go ahead. Sorry. About no, I was just saying thank you for flagging that. We, I'm recording an episode that is a climate change episode tomorrow, but I always appreciate that note and I am going to definitely follow up with Extinction Rebellion. But what else did you have to say about tonight's episode? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, I'm very much on the uh, flank, um, like Chris Hedges was on, I think last week. And, and it's, it's crazy to get these episodes kind of like back to back almost like this, because um just a lot of the things like um Nixon being the last liberal president, when I think, mm-hmm. I think it was Allie who said like, no matter how much activism we have, like it's not going to change anything unless we elect certain people. And I, I think history has really shown that the government apparatus has really been the tool of the 1%. Like, and I think Chris Hedges made a very compelling argument to, for since this country was founded, this government has been kind of the tool of the most wealthy landowners. Um, and it's always been um, the disruption of the populace that have then, no matter who was in power, someone like Nixon, for example, I was just reading up on how he raised the minimum wage by 40%. Because mm. he was, he was so like, can you imagine Biden mm. doing that? 
And the only way something like that could happen, and I really, I truly believe, like, having watched your show for now, you know, well over a year, like, um, I really do think that, like, electoralism has, is is a distraction that the 1% want us to engage in. And I really think, imagine how, like, I, I sometimes think about how powerful your show could be if, for example, if um, if there was, like, episodes on, like, methods of disruption a historical angle a practical angle mm-hmm. angle because how long do we have left media for now that we're mm-hmm. seeing the breakdown and i really do think this kind of like the limpness of electoralism is definitely the one of the leading uh paths to you know that kind of inevitable fascist takeover because we just don't we're going to keep ratcheting to the right it's going to keep being more neoliberal you know, like, uh, kind of like faux resistance, you know, and then so while we have left media, a show as great as yours, which I really enjoy, imagine disseminating those strategies that are just like, as opposed to Chris Hedges, who like, to his credit, I love him. And he's so insightful. But he's not really talking about specific strategies Mm -hmm. that myself and 20 friends could engage in, you know, like, real, you know, and your show could be like an outlet where a bunch of people are like, whoa, I heard on this show, this is the kind of stuff we can be doing. We can be blockading private jet ports, private helipads, targeting the 1% profits, the 1% who are the only villains in this entire scenario, you know, as I yeah. before. But like, yeah. Well, look, I hear you. Crazy. We're very much on the same page, Clifford. I'm doing two interviews tomorrow. One is with, um, you know, Peter Kamas, who's been on the show, climate activist, who has really taken a oh, hard pivot toward excellent. a lot of really you know, more extreme activist, not, I shouldn't say user extreme, but a yeah. lot of a lot more direct action, let's, shall we say. Yeah. Um, I saw him tweet the other day, you know, if you're a climate activist who's willing to get arrested, like DM me. And I was like, Ooh, <laughs> yeah. let's talk. Cause it sounds like some interesting stuff is afoot. So that'll be one interview. And the other is obviously, you know, with someone I think we'll all be very excited about uh, from the Amazon victory in, in oh. New York, who I'll ask some of the similar questions. So, you know, we're on the same page, Clifford. I'm okay. totally with you. And I also share your concerns about um, ratcheting up of, of censorship. So I hear you. Right. Ariana, I, can, yeah. I, can I ask a question of, of you, yeah. Clifford, then? So am I hearing you right? Basically, what I hear is there is no point in us running for office, that it's not useful and we shouldn't bother. Is that what, you, what I'm hearing? What do you say to that, Clifford? Do you, I, do you agree with that? That, that kind of, you know, that might hurt to say because you both seem like great people and I do wish you the best but I do truly thoroughly believe that's the case yes because like and you are you seem like an environmentally minded person so you probably are more hip to most of the stuff than I am but if I understand what I've been reading correctly and I think you quoted it very accurately that mitigation is now our only chance and it's more geared towards survival then I think it would be pretty I'm not being radical when I say that the government in the last 40 years, I haven't been alive 40 years, but it it's definitely been a one-way trend towards climate catastrophe. And really, in order to get anything, like I wouldn't feel comfortable having children. I'm 29. I wouldn't feel comfortable having children unless incredible steps were taken. And that could not, there's no way, I, I foresee that the midterms will go poorly and the only way to galvanize anything would be amazing, drastic action. And I think it's going to take the bravery of a few 
to galvanize that. And I think resources that are directed towards elections could be better directed towards bail funds, for example, that would galvanize someone like me to be more willing to uh, put my body on the line. Thank you, Clifford. I'm going to bring Eric up in the wings and try to get through a few more callers because we can't go as long okay. as we normally do Thank because of my so early much. morning. Thank you. And Brianna, I'm actually going to have to step off. I'm sorry about that. Thank you so much, though, for having me on tonight. No worries. Thank you so much for returning to the pod and donating so much of your time generously. Thank you, Reverend. Okay. All right. Take care. Good night, Allie. Good night, yep. Wendy. Take care. Uh-huh. So my answer to that question, <clears throat> I, I'm still a little bit more conflicted because, you know, I, I sit with someone like Senator Turner and there is also a symbolic cost, I think, to leftists losing those kind of very public battles. It enables Pelosi to get on her pulpit and blame progressivism for everything that's ever bad that's ever happened to the Democratic Party. And maybe that's an argument for supporting the candidates that are already running, but not wanting people to do it, you know, to, to start candidacies in the future. Maybe that's kind of what I'm saying. But I have a hard time not being emotionally invested in, in let's say, I'm going to say S&T because I just I have a personal relationship with her and it's so public and big, her winning, you know, and maybe that's just some vestigial, vestigial con, you know, connection that I have that I need to get rid of. And that's not valid. I'm not saying I'm right, but I wouldn't entirely say it doesn't matter at all. And I think there is probably maybe an argument to maintaining a sufficient amount of status quo where there are people who can still ring the alarm bell, who can still use the platform to do what's good. If AOC did a hard pivot and used her platform to really put the screws to the Biden administration, I might change my tune and say, oh, there's obvious merit to her now. There's obvious merit to getting in there and using the platform for good. The problem is that we went from having, uh, you know, sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office on day one to the Met Gala dress. And I don't want to overstate the Met Gala thing or give her, like, just really pile on about that. But, you know, it's hard hard to really make the case for how the platform is especially useful to the left right now. I I, I don't know. I, I could be being overly pessimistic. Eric, you tell me if you think I'm wrong. Well, to be honest with you, I don't think you're wrong because I'm kind of more like in the same place as you are where I'm not yet in that middle ground where I'm like, I do feel sympathy to people. I like both of these speakers. I do think they'd be great if they were in Congress, if they could get over that hurdle. Um, I'm the same way if AOC was to take this uh, 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 just complete turn and go back to the AOC where she's, you know, stood at Nancy Pelosi's office and didn't leave until she got a Green New Deal, you know, in the uh, the zeitgeist. So that's one of the reasons why I liked what Crystal Ball did when she called out AOC in that thing. And that's why it made me so mad when you saw other, you know, YouTube uh, personalities and hosts defend AOC. I'm like, that's to me, I've always said, you are you, like... I don't understand why people like Majority Report and stuff. Like, I don't mean to call out any other YouTube channel, channel, but that's just one that popped up in mind because I remember watching them talk about this. I'm like, are you on AOC payroll? Your job is not to be her PR agent. That's AOC job. Mm. That's AOC. She hired people for that. She messed up. She had a boo-boo. 
And I remember watching an interview, I think it was between, not interview, but it was a conversation between um, Emma uh, Ziegland, I can't remember her name, Emma. On Ziegland, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and um, Naomi. And they were talking about that tweet. And it was this, you can almost kind of see that Emma kind of agreed with the crystal ball tweet. Mm. And but and but Naomi was just going the complete opposite. Like, why are you going after one of our few allies in the uh, in Congress? But I'm like, that's not to me. That shouldn't be your job. Mm-hmm. Your job should be this is what happened. This is how I see it. This is what could have been done better. I just think AOC messed up on that. She really thought. I, I believe the analysis was she didn't think they were going to win. Probably got some other more established unit telling they're probably not going to win, and she didn't want egg on her face. So, like, one of my more direct questions towards Ali would be is, I have no problem with people running as Democrats. I know a lot more people on your Patreon, like, I'm a subscriber, so, and there are a lot of subscribers who are like, oh, if you run as a Democrat, that's it, I'm through with you. I have mm-hmm. no problem with people running as Democrat, running as Independent, whatever. I'm, if I like what you say. I'm going to vote for you. But one of the things that I've come to the realization is I really need to start hearing people who I'm going to donate money to. Are you willing to be adversarial if you're going to run as a Democrat? Are you willing to be, if you get into that house, would you call Nancy Pelosi out on that floor in front of her face? So that's like my direct question to Ali. Would that be something you'd be willing to do? It'd be like Nancy Pelosi, like when Nancy Pelosi said the whole thing, for example, when Nancy Pelosi talked about, nah, I think, you know, uh, uh, Congress people should be a part of the free market and should be able to trade. Mm. And if that's something you're against, would you have gone to the House floor and been like, Nancy Pelosi is corrupt? And that's a corrupt statement, and she should take it, and she should, we should have a vote, and she should, that should disqualify her from being Speaker of the House for a Democratic Party. I don't know if I would use those exact words, but I would absolutely publicly disagree with her and call her out and say that that position is wrong. And uh, I, I don't know if I would have thought on my own to, to call for her repeal as speaker, but I think that's a great suggestion. It would have been a good, a good one. I, Allie, I'm, may I ask what about the words um, Eric used? You know, you, you know, you are corrupt. You're arguing for, to defend corruption. Why should a sitting Congress member who has privy to all of this, the legislative agenda coming down the pike that is going to affect the profitability of various companies, be able to own stock in those companies, what is it about this word corrupt that seems to be giving people pause? I noticed when I interviewed Cal- because, um, because, yeah, because there's, mm-hmm. so there's a difference between saying a person is corrupt and what they're doing is corrupt. Right. And so I don't think people tend to think of themselves as being corrupt, even when their actions are clearly corrupt. Right. So mm-hmm. um, I try to avoid calling people names for lack of a better term, but I absolutely will call them out for their actions. And I think it is absolutely a corrupting influence to have that corporate money. And especially when you look at some of the trades, I mean, there's a whole stock trading thing, which, you know, I haven't actually found, but I've I've read about several times um, where there are people track her investments because she's making money head over heels with what seems to be insider trading because she seems to have knowledge before the rest of us about stuff. And that is absolutely corrupt and should not be allowed. Eric, if Ali said, uh, let's say, Nancy Pelosi, you're defending corruption, 
um, you're facilitating corruption, not supporting and your this behaviors band. behaviors are corrupt. You're corrupt. And your behavior is corrupt. Right. Would that be enough for you? It would be, I would say it would be close enough. So I would still be on the fence, but I'd be more close to be like, okay, I can see where you're coming from. The only pushback I would give to that is, I feel from this from like a more like a moral standard where you're coming from is that you're viewing Nancy Pelosi as a person and I get not calling let's say um like I don't agree with calling like the people who vote in Republican primaries as mm-hmm. degenerate and you know uh what's the basic full deplorables mm-hmm. but when it comes to people who have been established like Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi or a Mitch McConnell. Like to me, Mitch McConnell is toxic waste. That man <laughs> is straight devil incarnate. Him and, and, and Dick Cheney. <laughs> <laughs> but Nancy Pelosi to me, in some cases, even worse because she, where Mitch McConnell, Mitch, I don't think Mitch McConnell really hides who he is. Mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi puts on this facade like she is good and mm-hmm. what she's really trying to do the best. So I would just say that while I see why you're looking at Nancy Pelosi as a person and I appreciate you being able to do that, I think it would benefit you for understand to see to see Nancy Pelosi as she is a system. She is a part of the system. When she to me, once you become a congressperson, you I like I take a very like you know uh, extreme position on it. You are almost like a tool in a way, mm-hmm. and I believe she's no longer tool for the people, and she has become part of the system. So to me, calling her corrupt is the same as calling the system corrupt because she is perpetuating that system. Yeah, I so, get that. Her yeah, that would be certainly a... duplicitous. Mm-hmm. She definitely says she's one thing and. And behaves in a different way for sure, for certain. And she's I mean, this came up one. with, yeah, this came up with Bernie in the primary, right? Zephyr Teachout famously wrote that article calling Joe Biden corrupt. Zephyr Teachout is nobody's fool. Zephyr Teachout is a very accomplished law professor. Like, she is on her game. She's like, you know, Tracy Flick level precise with the way that she behaves and organizes her life. She is not some firebrand on the internet. She wrote a well cited our article in the guardian about Joe Biden's corruption and the campaign disavowed it because, you know, Bernie expressed similar feelings about not feeling comfortable saying that Joe Biden as a person is corrupt. And I do kind of feel like I understand what you're saying, Allie, but I also yeah. do feel like, you know, that unwillingness to go there, I think reflects a, a degree of respect for the personhood of people who I think, you know, as a humanist, everybody is person and all that. But realistically, like people are dying, are dying. And, 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 yeah. and, and the gap between all of the rhetoric we use on the left and 68,000 people dying a year and all of this stuff and at all, even linguistically preserving an out for human beings who have shown such total disregard for how their policies have affected people. And what, I think what it says to the voters ear is. You care more about hurting Nancy Pelosi's feelings. I'm, I'm not saying this, but I'm saying that the, the implication is you care more about hurting Nancy Pelosi's feelings. Uh, Bernie cares more about hurting Joe Biden's feelings than he cares about us. 
from Bernie's perspective, I understand that he's thinking, I know Joe Biden. I've had lunch with Joe Biden. I went to Joe Biden's kid's funeral. You know, he's a, he's a human being to him. And I, I sometimes feel like I am not as, you know, intense in my criticism of the squad members in part because of, I don't have a relationship with them, but you know, I've, I've interviewed them. We were all together on the Bernie campaign. I, I, I get it. Like I get it, yeah. but I also know that there is some trust that's lost in me if I don't go as hard as some others against people who are real problems. Now, I don't think everyone deserves that level of vitriol. I don't think, I don't think necessarily, you know, that the squad members, I'm not at a place where I'm like, you know, they're corrupt, which I think implies a certain amount of intentionality that I think is true of Pelosi, but not true of someone in the squad, you know, an AOC. And I could be wrong about that. And I might change my opinion about that as time progresses and their behavior is what it is. But do, do you, do you, I mean, like, I, how yeah, do you, I mean, what do you think I about have, that? So I've actually had this conversation like multiple times with my son and you met him, Kyle, and mm-hmm. he is 100% in your corner. And I got to tell you, honestly, I have thought about this so much and you're right about Bernie and you're right about me. And I'm wondering if it's a socialization ge- and generational thing. I'm certainly younger than Bernie, but Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm older than you, right? And we were socialized in a certain way, raised in a certain way. So I'm wondering if it's just a matter of a product of how I was raised and who I am. And I'm 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 evolving. I am definitely evolving because I'm becoming so disgusted and so just disillusioned um, by by everything that's been going on. But it's still hard for me. It's hard for me to do that. And I actually mm-hmm. got advice that I needed to attack my uh, opponent, the incumbent, and go after him personally. And I did that at an event and was booed for it, which was, mm-hmm. you know, really fun. Um, but also it felt awful to me, right? Like it mm-hmm. felt awful to me. Um, and I'm wondering if it's just a matter of socialization more than anything else. Because – yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it, it, I, I, I think it comes down to semantics, right? Because, you know, when Eric's saying, you know, the person is the system, I, I think that that's correct in a way that they represent the system. And I think that if you're attacking the system and you're attacking the behaviors of a person that represent that system, um, to, I don't know, it's just hard, right? So, um, yeah, and to and your and to your point, Allie, I think there is a degree to which Bernie has built up all of this goodwill because he doesn't go negative and he never does negative attack ads, and he is well liked even by all of these conservatives in Congress who have a hard time saying a bad word about him. Other, they'll say things like, "You know, he's a dirty communist," but I I like the guy. I believe he believes what he says, and I believe that he thinks his agenda is what's best for the American people. I just don't agree because you know. Socialism. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something to that. And I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't say, I think that sometimes these things do have to be handled kind of delicately. I think there's potentially a way to say, look, I, I'm not interested in mudslinging. I'm not interested in name calling, but I don't know how else to describe a person whose choice is to defend a corrupt system. And I am mm-hmm. running because I want to draw a clear contrast between politicians who will defend the corruption in Washington and those who will make it their primary agenda to root it out and yes, drain the swamp. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean, but you've just said it in the way that I would say it too. 
right? Mm. Politicians who um, defend the corruption or who are part of the corrupt system as opposed to politicians who are corrupt, right? Mm. You've just said it in a way that I would say it. Um, Yeah. Well, look, look, Eric, thank you for that. I really appreciate the back and forth you've been. I think your questions have been really interesting and incisive. I'm going to bring Jack up. Nope. Try to get just through a couple more people. I was going to try to wrap by 1030. Might go a little bit after um, short. It's a short, relatively short call tonight. But again, early morning for me. What's on your mind, Jack? Uh, hi, Brianna. Um, <laughs> so great conversation overall. Um, I'm glad you brought up Marjorie Taylor Greene, too, because I wonder to some extent, like, isn't that the template? Like, the Tea Party has sort of dealt with all of these things, being blamed mm. for election losses, uh, you know, being too crazy, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, basically they would turn around and call the Republicans who accused them of that essentially traitors, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that they, they should be the ones that need to be purified from the Republican Party. This is our vision of the Republican Party. And if you're not on board with it, you're a traitor and working against the country. Um, and through that sort of discipline of message, they absolutely drug this country right over the past, call it 30 years. Yeah. I mean, what do you say to that, Allie? I think that's right, except it's 40 years. I think it all started with the Koch <laughs> brothers and Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan. You know, that, that was the, the beginning of the end of any sort of reasonable um, representation of the people. I think that that was the beginning of, you know, corporations ruling the world and the Walmarts of the world coming in and putting all the mom and pops out of business and devastating the environment. And, you know, you can't just place the it. Wealth gap, Pardon me. So. I, 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 I think it's a little facile to lay it at corporations though, because a lot of those corporations, the Cokes very much pro immigration uh, the Tea Party didn't care about that and still incredibly anti-immigration and would go after anybody against it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they kind of beat the corporations on that point. They they beat the corporations on all sorts of points that weren't in those sort of corporate interests. And yet they sort of stayed pure to themselves and, you know, were able to exercise really outsized political power compared to how many people they represented, their numbers in Congress, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. No, I was just saying that it's, I, I was just saying, I think it started 40 years ago, not 30, when the Tea Party was still the moral majority. I remember the bumper stickers, the moral majority is neither. Um, you know, it was Newt Gingrich and, and all of that. And I think that your point is correct, but I think it's been happening longer even than mm. you think. Well, thank thank you, Jack. I appreciate you calling. I'm going to bring up Michael next. What's on your mind tonight, Michael? Hey there. Um, Earlier, one of your guests talked about how she's going to go follow her conscience, uh, keep her promises. And if she doesn't, that she'll have to face the consequences. But there are no consequences. Mm. That's the whole thing. And, you know, that's not, you know, nothing against uh, Reverend Wendy or Ali or or anybody, but but, like there is no way of holding any of them accountable um, except like two or four years after the fact. What 
what about um would it be possible for a candidate to actually because this there is no way to do it in in our system but could a candidate make a system for themselves to be held accountable like outside of uh the normal way of government like Bree, you mentioned um like there's no legally binding contract mm-hmm. for you know what what a candidate says but what if there were um i mean like, yeah i there were i'm no contract professor <laughs> mm-hmm. um but i feel like there are limits to how much you can bind people's future behavior because it starts to veer into like slavery land <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. and ostensibly when we're talking about accountability, what it's supposed to be is, you know, democracy. The idea is supposed to be that if people don't act the right way, they are ousted. People don't vote for them the next time around, but the, what the, the, the scales are so weighted, um, in terms of who can get in and why, and the incumbents advantage and all those kinds of things that it doesn't work like that. And maybe it can work like that in smaller local elections, but it just tends not to work like that on, on a national stage. And so I, I, I hear you. And I think that if we had, you know, bigger, more powerful organizations, like let's say the way the unions used to work, if, if unions backed candidate because they were supposed to do X, Y, and Z for labor rights, and then they didn't, everybody was going to know about it. And the union was not going to offer their support the next time around. That's where the power came from. And that's why we talk so much about third parties and having concentrated voting blocks that can credibly withhold their vote or direct it otherwise. And I have a hard time understanding how to create accountability absent that. I mean, I would love it if, you know, a a candidate signed a pledge to do whatever the DSA or social alternative or whatever said that they should do. But, you know, politicians sign these pledges, break them all the time, and nobody cares. Look at, look at, um, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, back in 2018 when Beto O'Rourke People were writing gushing articles about him and how he was going to be the next Bernie Sanders and I was going to run for president. And there was no point in supporting a Bernie 2020 run because we've got Beto O'Rourke and he's the sexy calf cramping version of the senator from Vermont. And then David Sirota wrote an article about how he had completely betrayed his no fossil fuel money pledge. And what you got was the whole centrist media apparatus attacking David Sirota for simply reporting the facts of open secrets, saying that he was lying and smearing because he was in the, the camp for big, in the tank for big Bernie. <laughs> and like nobody just, everyone decided not to care, you know? Yeah, yeah I think well, Michael's point know. is similar to, to Omar's and, and it's very hard to, to hold people accountable and we do need a system. I think, you know, if it's, <laughs> if it's something anybody in the Hill would finally like to take a a stab out is campaign finance reform. If we had publicly funded elections where candidates were given equal amounts of money, where you could eliminate or at least significantly reduce the incredible, uh, you know, the, the, the incredible benefit you get from incumbency. I think that could help level the playing field and could help Mm. hold hold people, uh, candidates accountable, at least at election cycle, if not between. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Michael. I think you put a nice, uh, fine point on things with that question. I'm just going to take uh, one or two more. Uh, Owen, what's on your mind this evening? Owen, can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind? All right. I'm going to move on to Thomas. What's on your mind this evening? Hi. Um, I had one super fast question and then a follow-up. Um I guess my my question for Ali is: Are you a socialist? 
I don't identify with any particular party. I probably align politically not best party. with socialists, but I, 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 I genuinely don't define myself by a, by a party. I just, I really prefer to just stand on policies. Right. Can I ask okay. you, Thomas, so guess, what, yeah. what, what is, um, I, I don't mean this, I don't mean that I disagree with you. I just want you to unpack what it means for you to be, to identify as a socialist and why it matters to you, whether candidates do or not. Well, traditionally the aims of socialism are to overcome capitalism, right? To get to this Mm -hmm. thing called socialism. You can only do that if you're actually, or will only even do that vaguely if you're actually in favor of it. So like if you don't even support it, much less maybe even to have a good conception of what it is, I don't see why you should have any role of political leadership. For socialists, right? Hey, if you're just like, uh, we just want to keep capitalism running, great. Whatever. Capitalists should support you, maybe. But I don't see what the appeal is for a socialist. I mean, this is just like a, like a, a concern on, like a first level concern. Obviously, then we have to get into the deeper questions of like party and stuff, but I, I, from a socialist perspective, why should I even care about a candidate who won't even identify that way? Do you ever worry? And I, I really am just asking this. So there have been candidates who have obviously identified as socialists or DSA candidates, and they have been disappointing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there are people who I think very sincerely, and I count myself among them. Everyone knows that I hate to read, LOL, and have not, you know, cracked my Marx reader and I'm not as able to, you know, talk about these things from a theoretical perspective as, as well as some other people. But if someone says to me, as they have done, as Bernie did in 2016, here is why I identify as a social Democrat, democratic socialist. Um, I, you know, understand uh, theory of labor, you know, labor is theft. And I understand that I want to live mm-hmm. in a world where basic needs are, more than basic needs, frankly, are met and that human life and value requires that there exists a social safety net that respects that life, um, that I want everyone who wants to be able to work to be able to work and for profits and resources to be doled out according to need as opposed to these perverse you know, um, articulations of merit and all of this stuff. But I may or may not know or have confidence in, our t- in, in describing myself as a socialist. Like, for example, I know people are like, well, actually, I'm a communist. And I'm like, oh, cool. Like, sure. maybe I'm that too. But I don't feel today in this moment comfortable identifying as such because I just honestly don't know enough. So does that mm-hmm. – does, does someone who's kind of in that place, would that make more of a difference to you? Or is it like if you don't know by now, you're running for office, and you don't know enough about socialism to say whether you are one or not, it's like over for me? Yeah, I mean, you're putting the cart before the horse, right? Like, if you're going to run for political office, that means that you're asking for, like, a, a place of, like, leadership, right? Um, I think if it's something that you're, oh, I'm not sure if I'm a socialist, maybe I am. Cool. Like, join a party or join a reading group, try and learn what it is, see if it's something that you agree with, at least better your understanding of it. And then maybe you can rise to some position of leadership. But I, I, I don't think it makes sense, you know, for you to just skip all that and say, hey, I'm the leader, even though I don't really know what's going on. So can I ask a, a question, Thomas? Because I, yeah. I, I get this a lot from, you know, <clears throat> I get this a lot when talking to people, right? 
they're like, well, are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? And now you're saying, are you a socialist? Why does, why does it matter? Why does it matter what the label is? This is what I was saying about just wanting to blow up all the systems and just run straight on policies. Like, why, why is it so important that people have a label? That's, that's, right, I'm, I'm asking I, genuinely. I, I think because when I ask if you're a socialist, it's in part a question of, do you understand what capitalism is? And do you understand what it means to overcome it? And sure. I, think I mean, absolutely. When the answer you know, is, it's, it's definitely so. I, mean, I, I certainly understand what the social systems are and political systems are. I'm just wondering why it's so important to identify with a label. Uh, yeah, I don't think it, I don't think I think the fact that you're running clearly indicates that you don't know what it takes to overcome it. I mean, I think historically you need a socialist party that you're a part of uh, tied to a workers movement. And that together, then maybe you can start to press the question of socialism. But I think just you running independently alone, I mean, uh, look, you, you seem like a nice person, but I don't, I don't think that that makes any difference in terms of the question of socialism. Maybe better management of capitalism? Well, uh, Thomas, this is the thing. Like, there is a, there's a credible argument. There is a credible argument that, first of all, that does matter. Better management of capitalism, if you're not an accelerationist, you know, says mm. there are people dying and suffering, and the suffering could be mediated mm. by people who are better than the alternative. So for some of the reasons and the policy points that people have pointed out before, that, you know, Ali says that her opponent wouldn't have supported, what was it, a child tax credit? And it mattered, those things matter to people in the day to day. I think that people like ASC, if I were to do some armchair psychology, She's from a very low-income district. She sees people coming into her office who have these very real concerns that are not like systemic change level of concerns, but that she can help and she can get them the burial benefit during COVID or whatever else it is. And it feels difficult for her having the proximate experience of real people who she's helping on day to day to say, I'm going to give that back for the hope that me, you know, sassing Biden on camera one day is going to change the world. Now, you know, I feel how I feel about that, but I also think that plenty of people in good faith can say it's almost a privileged position to say everyone has to be identifying as socialist when so few people, I mean, so, few, so many people still need to be educated on what that means. It can be a real brand killer depending on where you are and what kind of district you're running in. You know, why is the left, let's say, shooting itself in the foot by making people who subscribe to every socialist value identify as such? On the other hand, I definitely see the argument that says, who are you afraid of and who are you trying to appeal to if you're unwilling to subscribe to this label? Yeah, I think that's also like, I mean, look, to, to, to give uh, an anecdote, I, uh, this is a story I, I heard the other day. So originally, um, the German Social Democratic Party uh, back in 1917 and before their whole uh, party line was not one cent for this government. So they would vote against every funding bill, right? That the German government put forward, right? Uh, and this is against the Bismarckian government where Otto von Bismarck is basically, along with Louis Bonaparte, the creators of the welfare state. They were voting down all of the welfare state reforms that Bismarck was, was putting up right? And his successors. But, and at that time, right, we were the closest we've ever been to achieving socialism, right? There were people 
like hundreds of millions of people around the world willing to put their lives on the line for it. Today, we have the current fallen version of the German Social Democratic Party in Germany running ads about how, hey, we're the good guys who support all the policies that Otto von Bismarck supported. That's literally an ad from the 1970s. Mm. Um, and there is almost no socialist movement. There seems like no chance of overcoming the situation in, in which we you know, live, right? Like at what time mm-hmm. was the socialist movement in a better place? At what time was there a real possibility for fundamental change? I hear you. And this is why people are all like, read books, Brianna, because history. And I and I hear you and I get it. And I, I will say, I mean, Alan, maybe you don't need me to like say anything in your defense, but I do feel like sometimes we are all on this journey. And I just do hope people recognize that we're all kind of learning and shaping our politics and reading history and understanding kind of the limits of different approaches in real time. And I hope that we don't necessarily jump to the idea that people are acting in bad faith just because they're not necessarily ready to subscribe to a certain sort of label. I mean, as someone who, you know, got dragged for filth over my first Ukraine episode, but, you know, I have, you know, you know, been learning along very publicly with all of you, you know, I just, that's all I'm saying. I I don't disagree with what you're saying, Thomas, but I also want to leave space for, you know, not necessarily taking the bad faith reading out of, out of everything. I don't know, Ali, do you have oh. anything else to say to that? Um, no, not really. I, I, I think that getting caught up in labels and semantics is to me less important than the policies and what we're trying to achieve. That's just my personal. No, Ali, I, I don't think it's just semantics. I think that there is substance, there's a substance, there's a substantive commitment that people want to hear. And I think there's a way to say it without using the word socialism but it's harder to make yourself come off as credible if you don't use the word socialism. And and I, I, I do want to respect that. That's where Th- I think Thomas is coming yeah, from. I don't I, think I it's nothing that. to not want to. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I appreciate that. You're right. That's a poor choice of word on my part. Um, I, I, you know, in, in, in looking at this more sort of um, uh, realistically, practically in this district, uh, I think this district is one, Brianna, that you mentioned that, you know, the word socialist would be viewed negatively um, just because this is a blue no matter who kind of place. Um, and people don't see the irony of that here, which is yeah, a whole other problem. I, I, I totally hear that. And you're one person who's devoting your life and energy and your fundraising and all of this stuff. And it's difficult to ask any one person to fall on the sword of like legitimizing the word socialism. I also do think it's the case. And I've said this when talking about um, Nina Turner's race. I also do think it's the case that if more people acted boldly, the same way that these tea partiers are out here saying some wild stuff, if more people acted boldly, it would start to desensitize the public. And there's a way that, you know, the short term, the short-term game of trying to get elected with, while avoiding some of these tougher concepts eventually hurts people down the line. And it, it completely falls on these big national candidates, whether it's your race or your Turner's race or Bernie's race, to do all of this political education because we're not talking about it in the interim and because so many other, can, you know, it's not all the candidates basically 
diffusing the sting by doing it at the same time. But thank you, Thomas. I'm going to take one more jaw and then we're going to call it a wrap. What's on your mind, jaw? Can you unmute? There you go. Jaw, you're unmuted, but I don't hear you. All right. I'm going to bring Owen up as the last person. He's the one that had the technical issues, but I see he's back in line. Owen, are you able to unmute this time? Owen, can you unmute? Going once, going twice. I tried, Owen. I tried. Okay, Anthony, you, you will be. No, let's try Jaw again because I see he's back in line too. Okay. Jaw, are you able to get your technical stuff together? Yeah, you're unmuted, but I don't hear you, buddy. I do not hear you, which makes it Seth. Come on, Seth. End us strong. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hi. Hi. I can. What's a quick question you've got for Allie tonight? Oh, well, it's not really a question. It was more a a perspective on the question of the episode, which is electoralism. Shall we give it a chance? Um, Mm -hmm. Basically, my thesis is that our electoral system is an impenetrable object and Unless we remove it, we will not get the power that we need to get the things that we want. So I think that the solution, I hear you asking this a lot when people, you know, give this perspective of like, what is the strategy? What is the specifics that we do? And well, I'll tell you what, you know, what I'm working on, what my idea is, is I started an organization um, here in Philly. We want democracy, which is a movement for a new electoral system and new elections. And what we're going to do to achieve that is on September 17th, which is the anniversary of Occupy Wall Street and Constitution Day, we're going to protest. And we're going to protest every day from that day forward and hopefully spread this around the country and get this into like, you know, millions of people in the streets. And we're demanding the new electoral system, new elections with democratic demands, demands for voting rights, abolishing the electoral college, abolishing the Senate, proportional representation in the House, which would make third parties viable. And to get to something that people have mentioned a number of times tonight about accountability, recalls make all publicly elected, well, all elected officials subject to immediate recall. So if the voters vote for somebody, they get in office and then they take a vote or they do something that's against what the voters put them in there for, the voters immediately recall that person, remove them until they get somebody in office who will do what the voters wanted. Yeah. Allie, do you want to respond? Um, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about uh, the, you're right, impenetrable systems, trying to remove it. Um, you know, uh, practically, how does that work? Right? I, I really, I really, really appreciate the, the passion and the sincerity of, of folks who are just completely done with the entire electoral process. Um, And I, you know, this goes back to why bother running for office, right? Like, Mm. what's the point? Um, You know, just try to be an activist and hope that a president signs a lot of executive orders. Um, That's, that's great. Um, You know, that's, or, or run as a socialist that, you know, they're, you can't you can't win running as a socialist. So what do you do? I don't know. So 
it's it's very hard, right? It's you have your idealism versus your realities, and how do you bridge that gap? And and what what could what can I do? What can I do right now today to try and make that difference? If I run as a socialist, if I run as a Green Party, as an independent, I'll get two percent of the vote, maybe, right? Because we have a two party system, and at least in you know, Virginia and certainly in, in this district, it's like I said before, it's a blue no matter who, right? So I don't know. Well, um, Seth, what do you say to that? What do you say to Ali saying, I fundamentally will not win if I run. I'm not, this isn't Bernie International Movement. I'm not in the Bronx. I am not going to win in Northern Virginia if I run as a socialist. Uh, I don't think it matters because you're not going to have enough power whether you run as a socialist or not, whether you win or not, even if you do win, there's not enough people in the government and the way that the government structure and set up for you to pass policies anyway. So it's an exercise in futility. What's the point? And as far as like, is it realistic? I mean, I would point to 2014 in Ukraine, the Euromaidan and Victoria Nuland and her cookies, you know, like it can be done if we do it, if we go out and we protest and we make it happen. And if there's enough people that are down with the idea, and I think in this country there could be, that it would work and we overthrow the government. Yeah, it's difficult because the answers, I I got asked these questions, like I said, in this conversation today, I was having with some folks who are, you know, more traditional Democrats and, you know, there were lovely people and asking me very sincerely. And I think if you haven't kind of been along this journey, the left has been on these last two years, it can sound very alarmist and almost you know, overly radical and idealistic and out of touch with reality. But I got to tell you, when you, when people are presenting the questions like this and it's very difficult for folks, I mean, you heard me ask Rokana, like, how is it going to be any different? There's been so many, um, you know, moments that the progressives could have done something and they didn't like, why, like truly just explain to me, I'm open to it, but show me the evidence Show me specifically what could be accomplished if this more progressive person were in instead of this less progressive Democrat. And it does feel like a lot of people that even if there are some gains to be made, the margin of progress is so narrow that it feels almost worth it to have the less progressive outcome to reveal the extent to which we really do need to have a cataclysmic attack on the system. And that's difficult. And I'm sitting with it and I'm thinking about it and I'm just coming to that the same way that everybody else is. That is not where I thought I would be in my life as I like voted for Obama in 2008. You know, I I didn't see myself as being in this place and talking with this level of, frankly, radicalism in 2008. And yet here we are. And I'm sitting with it and I'm kind of adjusting to my new reality Allie, I know, you know, you're probably sitting with it and adjusting to your new reality because I, I truly would not have felt this way even, I mean, I worked for a presidential campaign, you know, a year ago, a year and change ago. And I just really appreciate, I just want to say to you, Allie, I really appreciate your willingness to engage in these questions because they are hard, both on the podcast and here with, you know, real callers. I saw at least one of your constituents was in the chat saying, I live in the 11th district and I don't know why I haven't heard of Allie. And maybe that's someone who hears you and your sincerity and will think, well, let me see if I can volunteer. Let me see if I can throw some bucks her way. Because I do think there are a lot of people who 
you know, see the, either the representational value of, excuse me, of progressives getting elected or the, the, the real concrete value of them having progressive votes to the extent that we have an opportunity to vote for progressive things. And I just want to reiterate that I have not come to any firm conclusions and I have the utmost respect for people like Ali and like Reverend Wendy who are still trying and are still pursuing this effort. And that, that very like human level of respect is largely what prevents me from wanting to withdraw entirely. But I do think we have to be thinking critically as we go forward and as we contemplate whether or not as candidates, as prospective candidates, this is what we want to do. This is how we want to spend our time and money because the time and the money is a lot. And what it takes from someone's life is a lot. And I have seen Senator Turner and I've talked to Senator Turner on a human level. I want to help her as much as possible because I see what is taken out of her and I know she's doing it for these, these purposes that I agree with and I support. But I mean, that is not, you know, the same thing as, you know, this broader conversation about what to do going forward. So again, I appreciate you, Allie, and please give people an opportunity, tell people where they can find you and support you if they're interested. Um, well, my website is, uh, alleyforcongress.com. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really having kind of an existential moment here though. So mm. Mm. why bother? This is a question. Why bother? I've spent a year of my life. I've spent a significant amount of my retirement. Mm. Why, why bother? Why am I doing this? I've got no support from the left, no support from the Democratic Party, no support from Republicans. So who's supporting me exactly? A lot of people said they supported me, but like I said, you know, do they really? I don't know. Um, I've definitely had a lot of support talking with constituents when I've just been mm -hmm. out and about talking with people. The average everyday voter, three out of four people I meet are excited about my campaign. They definitely prefer me over the, you know, incumbent who is in the top 10 for taking money from the military industrial complex, who takes money from oil and gas, who, uh, you, you know, he, 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 he doesn't support universal health care. He didn't, didn't support uh, paid family medical leave for non-federal employees. He didn't support universal child care, doesn't support uh, free public college, you know, none of these things, right? Um, and yet what I hear on this call and what I hear from, you know, within the Democratic Party is there's no difference and why bother? So it's very hard for me and very frustrating for me as a candidate and as a human being. And maybe I'm just tired and it's been a really long couple weeks. Um, but I, I'm asking myself the question, why bother? I'm, you know, that's a, a question yeah. that I pose. Why bother? I, I hear, I hear your frustration in the, you know, the sadness in your voice. And I, I share it. Like, I really like you, Allie. And I, I don't know what to do with this either. It is such a big question. And I hate the idea that you are feeling dispirited when you are working so hard for us, for your constituents to make the world better. And it feels like there's been a bait and switch. Like we've all been misled about what works and what we should be invested in. You know, I, there's a there's an argument that I should not have wasted a year of my life on the Bernie campaign and that I had more power and influence and could be more constructive as a journalist. And, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to any of these questions. I did see a comment from Day, though, that I really liked, and he lifts me up when I feel down. So I did want to give him a chance to give some final thoughts if he was interested in the we'll wrap for tonight. It's 11. Day, do you want to unmute yourself and, and basically articulate what you said in that comment? Sure. Um, can you hear me? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I are you talking about the most recent comment or the one before? Uh, I saw one about it not being all in vain and all of that. Yes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I first of all, my bias on the table, uh, Ali. I don't know if you remember we met at the Medicare for All rally with uh, Marianne, and I've talked to you on Zoom, so I do have a bias in that sense, but I am struggling with holding people for, how do I phrase it? Judging people by the actions of prior quote unquote progressives, because these people are coming in with the same knowledge that we have about how these prior people have failed us and that they want to do their best to override said actions. And I just struggle because I couldn't imagine, like I think about running sometimes and I think about what Ali spoke about vulnerably and how it would feel to be like, y'all, I'm on your team. Like I'm on your team. And to consistently be like, well, so-and-so failed us. So it just is never going to happen. I just don't have that defeatist attitude while also Mm. understanding, understanding totally the frustration. But I look at it and I'm like, if we have, if we don't have people and most importantly, in large numbers, like alleys, et cetera, even when we do the incredible and necessary work of organizing and you know labor rights, strikes, et cetera, it almost, it can be easily nullified the moment that we decide that bad faith actors or people who, because we didn't vote the right people in, can just write legislation in favor of the corporations that nullify all of this. Like what happens when, I mean, think about the fact now, we don't have a very strong labor review board, et cetera. Like we look at people like Amazon, et cetera, who are completely breaking the law, allegedly for legal purposes, (laughs) in terms of their, their, their union practices, union busting, but nothing happens. And that's because there's no legislation or no enforcement mechanisms with which we Mm -hmm. can hold these people accountable. And I guess I just hate to hear someone becoming dispirited because they look to their left and they feel like the people that they're supposed, they re- they relate to most can't, aren't willing to give them a chance. And I think I look at that sometimes, you know, I talk about it as a spiritual leftist, like sometimes I feel, or, you know, dealing with the democratic party, I'm just like, it's the most annoying when it's like, wait, I agree with you. And we're, we're on the same mm-hmm. team. So I don't know. That's kind of me rambling. I apologize, but. No, I really appreciate that. Cause I think that I, I also think there's a little bit of a problem with presuming that everyone's going to be as vulnerable as, you know, the candidates before. I think that it is also naive to invest in someone if there isn't some plan. I'm not saying their plan has to be 100% effective, but that they've given some thought to how they can do things differently or insulate themselves against the kind of pressures that the current squad members are under and that have caused them to behave in ways that have been disappointing. So I, I, totally. I and I do think that I want to say to Allie that I feel as though knowing that someone is fighting for me, even if I disagree with how it's being done, it still matters. I don't know. I still feel that support and that solidarity. And I still feel an emotional investment in this campaign and Winnie's campaign and S&T's campaign. And I still respect the sacrifice and the willingness to put yourself out there and to be so vulnerable 
the way that Allie has been tonight. And I think, I think we lost her, but I just really want to give her huge plaudits. Like I wish I could open up the room to everyone so we could just really clap and applaud her willingness to come here and submit to a pretty tough round of questions, questioning and Reverend Wendy as well. But for Allie in particular, being so vulnerable and honest about this being a tough question that she's wrestling with in the middle of an ongoing campaign. So if accountability is anywhere, it's going to start with people like Allie and Wendy being willing to come on shows like this and work through all of these, these issues together as a left community. And I'm grateful for all of you here in the chat for being here tonight and working it through me with, with me on bad faith on these Colin episodes um, twice a week. So thank you. Yes. Day. I just, unpopular take. So I, I hope this doesn't offend too harshly people, but like, Sometimes I feel like we are almost doing the blue no matter who thing as leftists, but from a perspective of like, oh, if you're a Demo- if you're running as a Democrat, then clearly you're corrupt or you're not really serious. And it's like that to me is not a far off. Well, Dave, I think that's I think that's a little different because I I do think what people are saying is that you're necessarily correct, but I mean some people do say that, but the bigger yeah. critique is that no matter what you do, no matter how well intentioned, it's not going to work. And so what I'm saying is, and I think what people are saying is, at least articulate an explanation for how you're going to be able to do stuff differently and withstand the pressures better than others before we invest emotionally or in our time and our money. But I, I do need to really wrap this conversation. I'm so sorry, oh, Dave. I got to wrap this conversation. Um, I want to, again, thank you all. Remember that you can use the clip tool to cut clips from social media, post them to social media, tag me in them, and I will retweet them. Try to tweet the audiogram that you can generate by downloading the clip to your phone as opposed to just the link. It'll get more eyes on it. But either way, I appreciate all of you for tuning in. It's been a nice big crowd tonight. And again, thank you first and foremost to the candidates. I wish them all the best. And please do consider if you are someone with even a glimmer of interest or hope in these campaigns, electoralism, or even just to have compassion for these candidates for their willingness to submit themselves to this line of questioning, you can find their links and donate to them. Take care of yourselves and each other. And remember to keep the faith. I'm over your games. I'm over you asking me when you know I'm not okay. You call me in line, and I pick up the phone. And though you be telling me, I know you're not alone. Oh, and that's why you're Drag me down and fill me with self-doubt. Oh.